0: This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC, points through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only physician's own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute. Polycystic Ovary Syndrome. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao.
1: Hyperandrogenized women have fascinated physicians and artists alike for a millennia. For example, the god of the Nile, Happy, is described to be a bearded, overweight man with a woman's breasts. One of the only two female pharaohs, Matakari Hatsheput of Egypt, was described to be her suit. In Macbeth, Shakespeare wrote, You should be a woman, and yet your beard forbids me. Physicians have linked hirsutism to amenorrhea since 1400 BCE. Hippocrates described two cases of women with beards and masculine body types who also had amenorrhea and then succumbed to an early death. In subsequent years, other physicians have published similar findings of women with menstrual irregularity and masculine features. Fast forward now to 1721. Italian physician Antonio Vallisneri described a plump, infertile woman with shiny, white, lumpy ovaries that were as large as a dove's egg, which is larger than normal. He was the first person to describe the morphologic features of polycystic ovarian disease. The typical features include ovarian enlargement, thick pearly white capsule with numerous subcapsular cysts. Since then, numerous case reports through history point to the same disease. In 1879, Lawson Tate even described performing bilateral oophorectomy to treat a woman with symptomatic cystic degeneration of the ovaries. Although such drastic surgery was not popular, the other contemporary options to treat included resection or partial resection of the ovary or puncturing the cysts on the surface of the ovary. The underlying cause of this disease was still a mystery. It wasn't until American gynecologists Irving Stein and Michael Liebenthal published their seminal report in 1935 that these disparate observations were synthesized into a single condition featuring menstrual dysregulation, cystic ovaries, and hirsutism. This condition soon became known as stein Leventhal syndrome, today more commonly known as polycystic ovary syndrome, or PCOS. PCOS is the most common endocrine disorder of young women with rates as high as 26% in some subpopulations. So to share their expertise in diagnosing and treating PCOS, I've invited two of Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center's PCOS experts. Dr. Loriana Soma is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology, and Dr. Lakshmi Nair is an assistant professor of internal medicine specializing in endocrinology. Together, they care for patients at a multidisciplinary PCOS clinic at the Wexner Medical Center. Loriana, Lakshmi, welcome to MedNet. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Lori, uh, Loriana, I am excited to hear all about PCOS, but what are some of the less known symptoms of the condition?
2: Um, we think about the hyperandrogenism as a common um, cosmetic problem that happens for women and usually facial hair like you mentioned mm-hmm. um, but hair thinning can also be a sign of hyperandrogenism so hair loss or significant hair thinning could be mm-hmm. a possibility and then fatigue which can be related to sleep apnea which is more common in patients with PCOS could be kind of a subtle symptom.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay good point point. and Lakshmi What are the overall health outcomes of women with PCOS? So, you know, in my anecdote, I mentioned Hippocrates had two patients who died young. Um, Do women with PCOS have worse outcomes?
3: Um, so, good question. Um, it's hard to extrapolate from uh, some of that histo- these historical cases mm-hmm, uh, sure, <laughs> to know whether or not they had any other secondary causes. Um, but I think, uh, most importantly, uh, the things that can affect um, the longevity or quality of health for um, patients with PCOS, maybe if they develop some of the complications or other comorbidities. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Okay. I'm excited to hear more. Before we get started, don't forget to send
1: us your question using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom right-hand corner of the webcast player. You can find all 120 of our current programs on both our website, ccme.osu.edu, or by podcast. Search for MedNet 21 CME on your preferred podcast player. Now let's get started. Loriana.
2: Hi, I'm Loriana Soma. I'm a general OBGYN at OSU, and I'll be talking about PCOS with Dr. Nyer. Objectives today will be going through the background, including epidemiology definition and diagnosis going through evaluation with history, physical, lab, and imaging workup. We will use gynecology and endocrinology workup and management and cases to illustrate these things, including clinical manifestations, evaluation, and treatment. In terms of background, as Jingjing mentioned, this is the most common endocrine disorder among reproductive age women. Depending on what population you're looking at and what diagnostic criteria, it can be from 5 to 26 percent. There are different PCOS phenotypes and variations, so patients can present to different specialists depending on what their symptoms are. And it can be difficult to get a diagnosis for a lot of these patients because of the variable symptoms and there's not a very consistent approach to care. So that leads to frustration for both the patients and the providers. So we definitely need to work on improving our care for these patients. They have reproductive, metabolic and psychological health issues. PCOS is defined as a disorder characterized by hyperandrogenism, ovulatory dysfunction, and polycystic ovaries. Um, there isn't a universally accepted criteria or di- diagnosis, which I'll be going over next. Um, the, the illustration on the right of the screen shows the polycystic ovaries, and then the ultrasound, um, kind of the bottom part of that ultrasound picture shows an ovary with a peripheral follicles. We talk about the string of pearls. Um, that's a polycystic ovary so these are three different diagnostic criteria that have evolved over time um, important to know with all of these criteria that you must exclude other causes that could be causing the symptoms so in 1990 the NIH um, proposed their criteria which required both chronic anovulation and hyperandrogenism and important to note that the hyperandrogenism could be either biochemical or just clinical signs. In 2003, the Rotterdam criteria came out, and this requires two out of of three of the criteria, oligo or anovulation, hyperandrogenism, and polycystic-appearing ovaries on ultrasound. In 2006, the Androgen Excess and PCOS Society proposed that it should be diagnosed when both hyperandrogen Hyperandrogenism is present as well as ovarian dysfunction, and that could be either anovulation or polycystic ovarian morphology. So in 2012, there was an NIH methodology workshop, and they recommended that the Rotterdam criteria be used. So that does seem to be the most common criteria. It is the most inclusive, so it, it also has been criticized because it can include more mild phenotypes. In terms of differential diagnosis, I'll be talking about the gynecologic side, and Dr. Nair will talk more about the endocrinology side. But when a patient comes with secondary amenorrhea, you always want to rule out other causes than PCOS. So pregnancy is the most common cause of secondary amenorrhea. Always check a pregnancy test. Other things would include hypothalamic amenorrhea or primary ovarian insufficiency, which is like early menopause. Also, physiologic adolescent anovulation is a normal part of development, so especially in the first three years after menarche, adolescents will commonly have an anovulatory bleeding pattern. Um, an ovarian androgen secreting tumor could um, appear as PCOS, but typically these patients have a more, more severe symptoms of hyperandrogenism and a quicker onset. And then another common um Another common population would just be patients who have gained weight or are obese. They can have anovulatory bleeding on their own, but not necessarily have PCOS. So I'll start with my case. This is patient LS. She's a 32-year-old G0 who had secondary amenorrhea with no period for six months. She also complained of an increase in facial hair, acne, and weight gain. She has no significant past medical or surgical history. Her family history is significant for diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and lipid disorder. So clinical manifestations for PCOS patients include reproductive abnormalities and hyperandrogenism. For the reproductive side, menstrual disorders or not getting a period are common, as well as infertility. I'll later be talking about pregnancy complications in women with PCOS, and then polycystic ovaries are a sign. In terms of hyperandrogenism, oftentimes these patients will have complaints of hirsutism with excess hair on their face, chin, upper lip, or sideburns, as well as potentially their, their chest or their abdomen. Acne can be a sign, and then male pattern balding can be another symptom. Other manifestations include metabolic issues and psychiatric disorders. A Majority of women with PCOS are also obese, and there is a high risk of insulin resistance and progression to prediabetes or diabetes in patients with PCOS that is also um, independent of obesity. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease can happen, as well as metabolic syndrome. And dyslipidemia um, is is a risk, as well as cardiovascular disease and sleep apnea. For the psychiatric disorders, both depression and anxiety are more common in PCOS, and eating disorders can occur as well, including bulimia or binge eating disorder. For your evaluation, you should start with a history for a patient and get a good menstrual history including when they started their period, what the bleeding pattern has been and how long their cycles are if they're getting a bleed regularly. Um, Ask them about pregnancy. Have they been pregnant before? Have they had trouble getting pregnant or required infertility treatment? If they have symptoms of hyperandrogenism, when did those happen? How long have they been going on and what changes have occurred? ask about their medications and family history, including history of PCOS, diabetes, heart disease, um, infertility, and lifestyle factors are important to ask about too, including nutrition, physical activity, and their sleep. So for our patient on physical exam, she had a normal blood pressure, weight of 161 pounds, BMI 27.6, she had acanthosis behind her neck, There was mild hirsutism and acne scars on her face. She had a normal pelvic exam. Labs and a pelvic ultrasound were ordered for further evaluation. PCOS patients, when you evaluate them, you should assess for hyperandrogenism. Look at their um, symptoms of acne. There's not a standard um, scale for acne or... um, balding, but in terms of hair on the face or the body, you can use the ferriman galway scale. scale. Uh, pelvic exam is important to exclude clitoromegaly or enlarged ovaries because those can be a sign of an ovarian tumor. And then signs of insulin resistance would include acanthosis, nigricans, and skin tags. You would also want to evaluate for signs of Cushing syndrome um, like abdominal striae, hypertension, uh, buffalo hump, moon facies. Lab evaluation, again you want to exclude other common causes of amenorrhea with a pregnancy test first. Also check for TSH and prolactin and an FSH, LH, and estradiol will help to evaluate for hypothalamic amenorrhea. Um, You would want to order serum androgens, uh, total testosterone and free testosterone um, as well as DHEAS, that's an androgen that's secreted from the adrenal gland and can be elevated in PCOS. And you should certainly exclude other endocrine pathology, and Dr. Nair will talk more about that. So our patient had, um, overall, most of her, her secondary labs were normal. She did have elevated testosterone and she had a negative pregnancy test. So, PCOS was confirmed for her based on her hyper- hyperandrogenism and um, anovulatory or amenura- amenorrhea. This is her ultrasound. It showed, I don't have an image of the ovaries, but she did have mildly enlarged ovaries with peripheral follicles bilaterally. And this part of the ultrasound shows a thickened endometrial stripe measuring 1.55 centimeters, which was concerning for endometrial hyperplasia, which I will talk about more. Her lipid panel um, was done after her diagnosis was confirmed. It does show dyslipidemia. She had diabetes screening, which was normal, with an A1C and a two-hour glucose tolerance test. She had a negative screen for sleep apnea and depression, and an endometrial biopsy was done due to the thickened stripe, and this showed complex hyperplasia without atypia. So that is an overgrowth of the endometrial cells, which are abnormal and without treatment can um, progress to cancer, which is is a higher risk for patients with amenorrhea and PCOS. So after a patient is diagnosed with PCOS, you should do a cardiometabolic risk assessment with blood pressure, weight, and BMI, as well as checking their fasting lipids and diabetes screening. Um, We recommend using a two-hour glucose tolerance test because it gives more information about the way that the body's processing sugar and glucose tolerance. If a patient is wanting to pursue pregnancy, you can check on her ovulation um, by kind of going through the menstrual history and timing of cycles. You can also check alludeal phase progesterone. That should be timed about a week after expected ovulation to confirm that the patient has ovulated. And an AMH is potentially helpful in this patient population, but I'm going to talk more about that later. You should screen for depression and anxiety as well as sleep apnea since these problems are common. For the patient, it was recommended for her to work on lifestyle changes with healthy eating and exercise. She was given a Prevera challenge to help provoke a bleed. Um, this is done with Prevera 10 milligrams once a day for 10 days, and it should cause bleeding within one to two weeks after after completing the medication. She had a hysteroscopy, dilation, and curatage, which showed complex hyperplasia with focal atypia. <clears throat> because of this, Um, This was done to make sure that she didn't have cancer underlying with the endometrial hyperplasia, and she was given treatment with Megase, which is a um, high-dose progesterone to help keep the lining thin and prevent progression. The plan was made for repeat pelvic ultrasound and repeat endometrial biopsy to evaluate the hyperplasia. So patients with PCOS cycle management is an important treatment um, in order to help These patients have a more predictable bleeding pattern and also to protect the endometrium so they don't um, develop hyperplasia like this patient. It's important to tell patients that lifestyle changes can help with cycle regularity, even 5 to 10 percent weight loss can help with that. Um, Medication-wise, combined oral contraceptives are the first-line treatment. Um, both for they can help with cycle management as well as the hyperandrogenism. And you should definitely make sure that a patient doesn't have any contraindications to estrogen before starting these. That would be things like migraine with aura, smoking in a woman who's over age 35, a history of blood clots. Um, I listed some of the progesterones here, which are lower androgenic progesterones. Um, If a patient is not able to take a combined oral contraceptive, progesterone-only options are also available. So someone who is hoping to pursue pregnancy, um, if they're not getting a period on your own and they don't want to be on birth control pills, could take cyclic Provera. Uh, That's given every one to two months, a 10 to 14-day course to provoke a bleed. You can also use an IED, depra Nexplanon, progesterone birth control pills or higher-dose progesterone like Megase if hyperplasia is present or if heavy, um, heavy bleeding is a problem. Lifestyle changes are important for all patients with PCOS because of the metabolic complications. It's recommended to do 150 minutes of moderate exercise a week. I recommend strength training as well because that can help improve muscle tone, which will help with metabolism and insulin sensitivity. I talk to patients about increasing their overall daily activity and steps. I offer a nutrition consult to patients, especially if they're having difficulty with weight and obesity. Sleep hygiene and sleep apnea treatment should be used if needed, and treat depression and anxiety. For hyperandrogenism, these would be treatments for acne, hirsutism, or hair loss. The first line treatment is combined oral contraceptives because it does decrease androgen levels. Um, <clears throat> if that's not helpful, you can add an antiandrogen, like spironolactone, to that, and the dosing would be 50 to 100 milligrams once or twice a day. Flornithine is a topical treatment that can be used. Minoxidil or Rogaine is another topical treatment um, that would be for hair loss, and that can be used in combination with spironolactone. I offer dermatology referral to patients if they are having severe symptoms and their treatments have not worked, and they can discuss laser hair removal um, and other mechanical removal like waxing or electrolysis are also available. For fertility, um, preconception counseling, I always discuss nutrition and physical activity with patients weight reduction if needed because, again, the uh, modest weight loss can help improve fertility and also pregnancy outcomes, smoking cessation if needed. Patients who have infertility, this is often related to anovulation in the PCOS population, but you do want to do a full evaluation, including the semen analysis for the partner, and discuss the possibility of a hysterosalpingogram if there are any risk factors for tubal occlusion. You can assess ovulation um, with kind of a calendar, tracking the cycles. You can check a luteal phase progesterone, which I mentioned, and um, they could use home ovulation predictor kits as well. If they do need help with ovulation, letrozole is the first-line um, treatment. That's an aromatase inhibitor, and it has been shown to be more effective in PCOS patients, more effective than Clomid. Um, So to start that, you can use 2.5 milligrams of letrozole starting on day three, once a day for five days, and then assess if they're ovulating on that dose, increase it if needed up to 5 milligrams or 7.5 milligrams. And if, if that's not successful after three to six cycles, then would refer to an REI doctor. So our patient, her outcomes included weight loss after working on exercise with her trainer and dietary changes. Her lipids started improving, as you can see. She had a repeat endometrial biopsy, which was benign, and a normal ultrasound. So um, this patient wasn't pregnant, but in terms of pregnancy, there are higher risks in PCOS patients. They have a higher rate of miscarriage, higher rates of gestational diabetes, Preeclampsia or hypertension, preterm birth, multiple gestation, C section, and depression. And they are also higher risk in the postpartum timeframe, including thrombotic disease, preeclampsia, heart failure, cardiomyopathy, and postpartum depression or anxiety. So looking to the future, um, AMH level may eventually be part of our diagnostic criteria, but it is not yet. It is a hormone secreted by the granulesis cells, and it correlates with ovarian reserve and ovulation potential. It is significantly higher in PCOS. So um, there are thoughts that this could be an alternative to an, an ultrasound, since ultrasound is is operator dependent, can be limited with some patients, especially obese patients, and can be sometimes difficult to confirm polycystic ovaries. Um, currently, there's no international standard with cutoffs for a diagnostic criteria with AMH, but hopefully in the future we will have that. And then I wanted to mention inositol as well, it's a B complex vitamin, a dietary supplement, which has been studied in the PCOS population, can be used as an insulin sensitizer. So it is an alternative to metformin if patients are having side effects from metformin. It can potentially improve um, cycles and insulin sensitivity, ovulation, and when used in pregnancy, potentially decrease the risk of gestational diabetes. So it can be used in patients who are pursuing pregnancy, pregnant, or not pursuing pregnancy. So that's the end of my portion, and I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Lakshmi Nair for the endocrinology. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry.
3: Thank you. Um, My name is Lakshmi Nair, and um, I'm an endocrinologist at Ohio State and also uh, specialize in PCOS. Just to take us back again to the diagnosis of PCOS, focusing on the Rotterdam criteria, um, regardless of which guidelines you use, uh, you do have to exclude other causes. And um, these were alluded to um, in the first part of this talk, um, but I wanted to review some of those points again um, because it's important to understand that PCOS um, may uh, mimic other endocrinopathies. Um, As already mentioned, do not forget to exclude pregnancy. Uh, thyroid disease, or hyperprolactinemia. It could be um, from a pituitary tumor or medications. Um, <clears throat> other things to consider are congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Um, as mentioned already, hypothalamic amenorrhea, primary ovarian insufficiency. Um, an adren- androgen-secreting tumor, whether it be from the adrenal gland or the ovaries, um, depending on the acuity of presentation and severity of presentation, you might um, consider that di- as a diagnosis. Uh, Cushing syndromes and the Cushing syndrome in the right uh, patient population, um, and uh, acromegaly. Um, uh, this just uh, sort of tries to summarize some of the distinguishing features of some of these other endocrinopathies and what might um, clue one into considering another diagnosis for these patients, um, and how there is significantly an overlap um, between the symptoms um, that a patient might present with and PCOS. Um, and this is why I think a history and uh, a really in-depth history is very important for these patients. Um, some of the uh, diagnostic tools that can be used are also listed in this table as well. Um, I think it's very important to understand how this is a uh, multi-system dysregulation. Um, you know, we've have, we have the name comes as PCOS, um, but it's not focused primarily on the ovaries. There is a hypothalamic dysregulation, as mentioned, the polycystic ovaries, potentially an immune system dysfunction, insulin resistance at the skeletal muscle and the liver, vascular inflammation, and adipocyte disruption. And understanding that this is a um, sort of uh, multi-system dysregulation can help um, in evaluating risks for these patients. Um, And then the multiple different signals that might be disrupted and contributing to the manifestations for these patients uh, that result in elevated androgens, insulin resistance, and obesity that we we might see um, phenotypically for these patients. Um, I'd like to highlight the insulin resistance, which is very common in PCOS. um, And these women are more insulin resistant than weight-matched control women. um, And this includes peripheral insulin resistance, Um, Insulin sensitivity being reduced in all PCOS women. Uh, Their glucose disposal is decreased compared to weight match controls. This defect is worsened by obesity, as is the um, hepatic insulin resistance. And insulin um, impacts androgen levels and vice versa, simply because insulin reduces sex hormone binding globulin, therefore uh, making more free androgen uh, available for the systemic presentation. You see this in 75% of lean and 95% of obese or overweight women with PCOS. Um, And its uh, prevalence of gestational diabetes, impaired glucose tolerance, and type 2 diabetes is much higher in these patients. Um, Again, regardless of BMI, this is something that we need to consider for these patients, but certainly exacerbated um, with a higher BMI, Um, and higher for uh, certain subpopulations as well. Insulin augments the GnRH-mediated gonadotropin release, and this um, causes an LH-mediated androgen synthesis in in the theca cells. And this anti-mullerian hormone stimulation that was already mentioned, this all contributes to follicular arrest and ovulation disruption. So you can see the connection with insulin and um, ovulation here as well. And then, as I mentioned before, insulin's connection with bioavailable um, androgen through SHBG production. And then potentially lower um, IgF-1 binding proteins and more IgF-1 action and androgen androgen production as well. So there's multiple mechanisms how insulin resistance can contribute to the symptoms that a patient presents with. Um, So all of these patients should be tested for insulin resistance and components of metabolic syndrome, including the glucose disturbances, dyslipidemia, hypertension, evaluation for uh, waist circumference, BMI, and non alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, as mentioned before, you can assess their glycemic status at baseline. Um, and I know OGTT was mentioned before, A1C, fasting plasma glucose, um, may be considered as well. Uh, repeating this um, as, as indicated, um, certainly if higher risk patients, then considering maybe the oral glucose tolerance tests um, as a pre- preferential gold standard. Um, And certainly when considering preconception or early in pregnancy, not forgetting to screen these patients um, who are higher risk for the complications. Um, As mentioned before, um, we do have to consider all of the dysregulation and androgen synthesis in patients with PCOS. Um, And uh, some of this is thought to be mediated through LH, um, FSH, um, and the higher LH versus FSH. And that's where the um, premise of looking at that ratio uh, of LH to FSH initially is thought to come from, although this ratio is not present in all PCOS patients, so we don't necessarily use that as a diagnostic criteria. But looking at the pathophysiology, this is um, considered to be a possible mechanism. Um, Mentioning primary ovarian and adrenal hyperandrogenism, where there's increased circulating and intrafollicular androgens and and the DHEA sulfate from the adrenal synthesis. Remembering that testosterone is the primary source um, from the, testosterone's primary source is from the ovaries, and DHEA sulfate's primary source is from the adrenal glands. So if you're checking these lab tests, um, and you see something that is extraordinary, out of range, it may clue you in onto a secondary process for these patients as well. Just a note about measuring testosterone in women. Um, I'm sure we've all heard about measuring testosterone in men. Um, Men and women have testosterone. Certainly women are more sensitive to testosterone than men. And the changes that you see in the levels of testosterone that lead to the hyperandrogen-related symptoms in women, such as hirsutism or excess acne, um, would not cause any significant visible change like this for men. Um, And the moderate changes lead to all these symptoms for women, um, or the increased sensitivity at the receptors um, as well. More significant changes um, can lead to the virilization that was alluded to before, um, including clitoromegaly, deepening of the voice or changing in the body structure. Um, total testosterone is considered the first-line treatment and the most di- um, diagnost- most basic diagnostic parameter. Um, and uh, reference ranges need to be established for each laboratory assay, and they have to take into account... Um, actually menstrual cycle and age and time of day potentially as well. Um, So the first case example to illustrate um, PCOS I'd like to present from an endocrine standpoint was a 28-year-old female who presented for consultation. She shares that she was diagnosed with PCOS by her pediatrician around age 16, and this was when she discussed irregular menstrual cycles and weight gain. She was prescribed combined oral contraceptives and metformin, However, she self-discontinued these medications, and she felt they weren't working, as her gauge was weight gain. Um, She then had secondary amenorrhea coming off the combined oral contraceptive, and she started using progesterone to induce her cycles. Um, She saw me when she was in nursing school, and she was starting to learn about her family health issues, and came as she desired better management of her own health issues. So um, looking a little bit closer at her history, her menstrual history, um, she shared that menarche was at age 11 or 12. She'd had no prior pregnancies. She'd had irregular cycles through her teenage years, and then she started the combined oral contraceptives later in her teenage years. And off uh, all hormone therapy, she went at least six weeks, if not longer, without cycles, so she had established um, oligomenorrhea. Um, She shared that she had excess facial, facial hair growth, and around her nipples, so she had clinical hyperandrogenism present there. Um, She also had some acne that had um, presented or persisted into adulthood. Uh, She had a family history of type 2 diabetes in her mother. On exam, her BMI was 53. Her blood pressure was 122 over 80. She had skin tags, acanthosis, she had hirsutism on her chin, and she had acne scars on her face. her labs, her A1C, was um, 6.4. She did have a glucose tolerance test, and um, her two-hour value was 150. Um, she had a total cholesterol of 216, triglycerides of 206, HDL was 52, and LDL was 125. Her testosterone was 87, an upper range of normal for that lab was 60. She had a normal TSH, prolactin, 17-hydroxyprogesterone, and a late-night salivary cortisol that were all normal. So her labs showed an elevated A1C with impaired glucose um, tolerance because her uh, two-hour glucose was greater than 140. She had mixed hyperlipidemia, and she had hyperandrogenism. She actually did have a pelvic ultrasound as well. This showed thickened endometrial lining, increased ovarian volume, and multiple follicles, follicles in the periphery of the ovaries, that string of pearls that was discussed earlier. So she also had the PCO morphology. So she actually met all the criteria for PCOS. Um, This patient was started on metformin, she had diarrhea on the immediate release form, but she did tolerate an extended release form. Um, She was started on liraglutide and this was titrated up to 1.8 milligrams a day. She did start to exercise, she was lifting weights two times a week and kickboxing and then tracking steps and she had cardio as well several times a week. She started with meal planning and she was um, working on eliminating regular soda which was one thing that we identified and she was tracking calories. Um, she had lost, at one year, she had lost 35 pounds. She was tolerating her metformin and liraglutide. Her A1C had improved to 5.4. She was starting to have menstrual cycles every month, even prior to being on um, uh, hormonal contraception. She also started um, the combined contraception for management of her hyperandrogenic symptoms. And those symptoms did can start to improve as well. Um, so, the International PCOS Network guidelines in discussing lifestyle guidance for PCOS, Um, it is fairly general, Uh, healthy eating and regular physical activity to improve symptoms and general health. Um, I encourage patients, if they can, to meet with a nutritionist, um, and and anything that provides repeated check-ins or some kind of accountability usually provides the most success for these patients. Um, Intervention with diet, exercise, and behavioral strategies um, to avoid some of these other potential eating disorders are also important as well. Um, There's not one diet that fits all. I think Um, nothing super extreme is typically what I start out by recommending because those are hard to sustain. I think it's um, more important to see this as a longer term nutrition plan than a um, a short term diet. Uh, Again, focusing on accountability, tracking and um, some calorie reduction and diet um, to allow for a weight loss phase. And then again, um, a sustainable long-term plan. And if they can work with nutritionists, I think these are the ones that are most these patients are the ones that are most successful. Um, setting goals for at least a 5 or 10% weight loss in about a six-month period of time. Um, and, and then self-monitoring and then check-in as well to see if they're achieving those goals. Acknowledging the psychosocial impact and mood disorders. Um, and acknowledging that healthy li- healthy lifestyle may contribute to health and quality of life benefits in the absence of weight loss or maybe not in the um, total number of uh, pounds that the patient may see that they want themselves to lose. So they may want to lose certainly more than 5 or 10% of their weight, but they can achieve health benefit at that weight or even um, even earlier with these nutrition exercise changes. The benefits are improved ovula- ovulation menstrual pattern, pregnancy rates, insulin regulation, lipids profile, and inflammatory markers. Um, it's been discussed a couple times already. Metformin um, is most commonly used um, as PC- for PCOS when discussing insulin resistance or glucose dysregulation. Um, it's certainly um, cost-effective. Um, it's got long-term safety. Uh, there's decreased hepatic glucose production and intestinal glucose absorption and, and improved peripheral glucose uptake. Um, trying to get to, uh, you know, uh, 1,500 to 2,000, 2,000 um, milligrams a day is about what what I shoot for. You can go up to 2.5 grams a day. Um, And uh, you can use the extended release form. You can divide the doses with meals if that helps. Um, And the side effects are mostly nausea and diarrhea. Um, And pregnancy, there is some data for increased live birth, reduced gestational diabetes, and it's not teratogenic either. We don't use these in people who have chronic kidney disease. Um, There's potential um, reduced androgen in some studies that show improved menstrual cycling, um, but this is certainly not universally recommended as a first-line treatment for either one of those symptoms. Um, There's a medium weight loss benefit, although um, there's also usually some uh, lifestyle changes that are implemented with this. Um, And versus maybe uh, hormonal therapy, there may be uh, some blunting of the weight uh, gain and maybe some um, you know, anti-inflammatory or anti-thrombotic benefits as well. Um, uh, Glucagon-like peptide or GLP-based therapy, um, these medications are very popular currently. Um, What is GLP-1? GLP-1 is an incretin hormone along with um, GIP, gastrointestinal peptide, that's secreted from the cells in the distal small intestine after food intake. And the biologic GLP-1 has a half-life of two minutes, and it's rapidly inactivated by DPP-4. So food enters the GI tract, uh, then there's secretion of GLP-1 and GIP, and this acts on multiple targets. Um, So this is a sort of a pictorial demonstration of why um, these are very popular medications right now. Um, There is, um, you know, uh, glucose-dependent insulin secretion that's augmented with GLP-1 therapy, There's delayed gastric emptying from the stomach um, and and through the uh, GI tract. This um, therefore blunts glucose excursion and um, can uh, reduce body weight directly through that mechanism. There is a decreased fasting glucose with its effect at the liver. And even in the the CNS, there is increased satiety and a uh, lower desire for food intake. So, again, this just um, also highlights that there may be uh, improvement in the uh, cardiovascular system with reduced blood pressure, improved myocardial contraction um, in the uh, muscles, glucose uptake and glycogen synthesis um, can be improved, Um, how it might affect adipose tissue, um, improving fatty acid uptake, lipolysis, and glucose uptake. Um, And then I mentioned um, in the... um, Uh, The CNS brain is also reduced appetite, but also the HPG access may be improved LH production prior to ovulation and maturation of follicles. Um, And then it might be um, affecting receptors on the ovaries, and this might be a proposed mechanism for lowering androgen levels seen in some studies. But we still need more data to actually um, verify that these hypotheses uh, hold true. Um, some studies that looked at GLP-based treatment in PCOS women included um, PCOS women who were obese or overweight. Included uh, exenatide. This is uh, used in type two diabetes, um, and uh, but this was studied for PCOS alone or with metformin, and there were benefits to menstrual pattern, weight management, and inflammatory ma- markers. Uh, liraglutide alone or with metformin. Again, liraglutide has a uh, dual approval for type two diabetes and um, uh, under one of its names uh, for weight uh, obesity management. Um, but in this study for PCOS, uh, women who are obese or overweight, there were benefit to weight, insulin resistance, visceral fat, hepatic steatosis, 2 hour glucose tolerance, uh, potentially lower testosterone, maybe through higher SHBG, um, and then question if this improved um, prior to conception um, periods, uh, pregnancy rates for IVF. Uh, We don't use these medications um, if there's contraindications like pregnancy, medullary thyroid cancer, or MEN2, history of pancreatitis, or gastroparesis, and certainly cost can be a barrier to using these medications. Uh, Thiazolidinediones, um, I personally don't use these medications, but I included them here simply because they are insulin sensitizers. They are approved for type 2 diabetes, Um, and it's contraindicated for um, pregnancy, heart failure, or those with peripheral edema, um, it's certainly not uh, something I reach for simply because of the weight gain side effect, but they are in, they are fairly they are very potent insulin um, sensitizers, um, and there's some s- studies that may um, that show uh, potentially reduced androgen um, androgenic <coughs> symptoms and androgenic um, measures as well. Um, Orlistat approved for uh, obesity or weight loss uh, does reduce fat fat absorption, inhibits lipases, and inhibits triglyceride absorption. Um, It can be used up to three times a day. um, Supplement with um, the fat-soluble vitamins. Uh, Certainly contraindications to be considered for these patients. Side effects are primarily GI side effects because of the mechanism of action. But there is medium weight loss benefit as well. Um, Other options uh, not commonly used, but just to mention, um, and might be considered in certain patients, uh, acarbose uh, used for diabetes, but can reduce glucose absorption from the GI tract, Um, and uh, Phenermine or Phenermine topiramate improved for obesity management as well, Um, short-term use only for these medications. Um, It's pretty much extrapolating from other weight uh, management trials to the PCOS population. Subutramine not uh, technically available because of cardiovascular risks. But certainly, bariatric surgery, um, as with other um, cases for obesity, has been shown to be effective um, and can be considered in the right patient population um, if uh, if indicated. Um, The second case that I wanted to um, highlight today is um, to uh, look again at the endocrine, uh, the other endocrine causes of uh, amenorrhea or what might look like PCOS. So this was a 25-year-old female that presented due to lack of return of menstrual cycles after she had stopped her combined oral contraceptives. And she had stopped those six months prior to coming to see me. Uh, She was trying to become pregnant without success, um, and so she was referred uh, to me saying, uh, we think she has PCOS. She had menarche at age 11, and by age 13 she had actually started combined oral contraceptives for acne management. she had at least one year of regular menstrual cycles prior to starting her uh, combined oral contraceptives. As I've mentioned before, the early adolescence is kind of a hard time to establish a pattern. But she, she thought she had regular cycles prior to that. Um, since stopping, she also no- since stopping her birth control, she also noticed a twenty six pound weight gain in eight months, um, with uh, ten to fifteen pounds of that in the last six months. She had more fatigue and more worse and, and essentially new acne. Um, She hadn't noted hirsutism, headaches, vision changes, nipple discharge, or any hot flashes. Um, Just prior to coming to my clinic, she was prescribed uh, the progesterone, or Provera. She took a 10-day course and had a very light two-day cycle. So she was referred uh, with these labs already. She had an elevated total testosterone. It was 106. Um, She had uh, normal prolactin, a TSH that was normal, a random FSH that was 5.2, and an ultrasound that was concerning with PCO morphology on on, the right side, on her right ovary. Um, uh, asking her more questions, she denied any other chronic medical conditions. She had only been on the um, uh, medroxyprogesterone and the Provera, which were only medications. Family history, her mother had hypertension, her father had high cholesterol, she also had type 2 diabetes in grandparents. On exam, her BMI was 35. Her blood pressure was slightly elevated. She had a heart rate of 8 to 6. She did have a dorsal fat pad. Um, she had acne present on her face, chest, shoulders. She did not have any hirsutism evident, acanthosis, or stria evident. Um, her labs, uh, her A1C was 5.2, but her two-hour glucose on a glucose tolerance test uh, was 243. Um, and her testosterone was elevated at 77. Um, She had normal DHEA sulfate, and her 17-hydroxyprogesterone was normal. So she had type 2 diabetes, um, hyperandrogenism present. And I said, okay, well, maybe you have PCOS and type 2 diabetes. Um, But then after she had submitted her um, late-night salivary cortisol that day that I saw her, and they came back, and it was actually elevated. Um, So her late-night salivary cortisol was 381, and it should typically, depending on which lab it's being done, it should be less than 50 or 100 Um, So I asked her to complete a 24-hour urine because you can get some, um, although that's a fairly significant late-night salivary cortisol, I asked her to complete 24-hour urine cortisol, which was also elevated. Um, This was followed up by a 1-milligram dexamethasone suppression test, and her cortisol did not suppress. Her MRI MRI ultimately revealed a 4-millimeter pituitary microadenoma, um, and she was referred for surgery. She had surgery. Two weeks after surgery, she had a menstrual cycle. The next cycle was one month later, and she became pregnant in the following cycle. She had uneventful pregnancy, and after her pregnancy and delivery, she was down 65 pounds, had regular menstrual cycles, and no further symptoms. Um, So a few summary points are that PCOS is prevalent, but diagnosis is is uncommonly delayed. Um, Diagnostic criteria have changed over the time and likely will continue to be updated as we Uh, find more and maybe more specific (laughs) diagnostic criteria. Earlier intervention, serial monitoring, and individualized management can reduce the risk for potential life complications. Management is focused on a patient-specific risks, concerns, and clinical features with focus on quality of life and long-term health benefits. The differential diagnosis for irregular menses should be explored for all patients, presenting with possible PCOS. Likewise, patients should have secondary endocrine causes excluded. And I think we'll, we'll see if PCOS's name changes in the future. Um, it's very, I, I doubt that the name will go away because that's what everybody knows it as, but there's certainly um, pr- pr- you know ideas for new names in the future. But I think it's what this highlights is that this is not just at this level of the ovaries and it's maybe thinking of it as a metabolic reproductive syndrome or condition. Um, to better understand this disorder as a comprehensive multidisciplinary um, Approach and management to these patients.
1: Awesome. Thank you both so much. And, you know, I totally agree with you with the possible name change because it really seems like the name is focused on the ovaries and that's not even something that's required for diagnosis. So that kind of brings me to my first question, Loriana. Um, You know, if, if like, ovarian pathology is not required as part of the diagnosis, First of all, do you need a pelvic ultrasound in patients you suspect with PCOS? And then also, you know, since you guys both mentioned that you can have endometrial hyperplasia as a complication, is it still important to do because of that risk? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, you're right. You can get a diagnosis without the ultrasound if there's hyperandrogenism and anovulatory bleeding. Um, But it seems like in a lot of patients there is some reason to do the ultrasound, whether or not they're having persistent heavy bleeding after months of amenorrhea or if they just have no period and you are worried about Mm -hmm. hyperplasia in the population. And then we also know that patients that have classic PCOS with all the criteria have higher risks of complications, so Mm -hmm. I often add an ultrasound if it hasn't been done, but it's not necessary for the diagnosis. Okay great.
1: And then, actually, I know you went through a bunch of meds, and that was super helpful. Um, But for metformin, you know, like, as you said, it's indicated for um, diabetes and pre-diabetes. Mm. Is there any benefit in women with PCOS who don't
3: have insulin resistance? So I think um, not. Uh, not specifically that we can, you know, uniformly recommend. Uh, we typically do use it for um, either lean or overweight or obese uh, PCOS patients that have insulin resistance or some glucose disturbance. In the absence of all of that, um, there isn't really clear data that shows a specific benefit. Um, I will say that patients will, um, you know, on a case-by-case you know, uh, basis, if they've already been on metformin, share that they feel that it has helped with either menstrual regularity or weight management, um, but uh, that isn't necessarily the universal recommendation. Okay. And then also kind of um, related to the diabetes
1: bit, um, I know you guys kind of stressed that the the oral glucose tolerance test is the preferred test for PCOS patients, but it's obviously a lot less convenient. Most of us can't do that right in our office. The patient has to be fasting. So is um, is fasting blood sugar or hemoglobin A1C still okay to use? or? Or uh, should we really be pushing these women to get the OGTT?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think we're in a unique situation because we're often sending them for other labs, but certainly recognize that a full uh, two-hour glucose tolerance test has its limitations. Um, I think um, in certain patients with that are high risk, um, you might certainly consider the r- true uh, original gold standard of a two-hour glucose tolerance test. Uh, fasting glucose, or A1C, uh, certainly can be elevated but it's typically later in that um, you know development of insulin resistance and progression to diabetes and that's where the glucose tolerance test, does um, have its superiority. Um, so maybe in high-risk patients or those who you feel are certainly at risk for the metabolic complications, uh-huh. considering that as a follow-up diagnostic. Okay. diagnostic. okay.
1: And then if you have one that is positive, like, you know, your mm-hmm. example patient, um, do you need to repeat it to kind of confirm that type 2 diabetes? Um, um,
3: you know, usually that that's tough. <laughs> uh, <laughs> technically, with the oral glucose tolerance test, that's your gold standard. Um, for an A1C or a fasting glucose, typically we do require them to repeat that to validate that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, The case example that uh, was shown here, uh, they were floridly positive, so I don't know that I would have (laughs) necessarily (laughs) repeated that, although her diabetes did resolve after Uh after her treatment. (laughs) That's a pretty remarkable (laughs) weight
1: loss. That's amazing. Um, And, Loriana, um, you know, I know you pointed out some specific um, types of progestins, including drosperinone, Um, and I understand drosperinone can have its own antiandrogen effects, which I'm sure is very attractive for PCOS patients, but how do you balance that with the increased rate of, um, you know, blood clots? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, We know that all birth control
2: pills do raise the risk of blood clots for patients, although the absolute risk is still very low. So I think you have to talk to patients about the risks and benefits. Um, I don't generally use drospirinone as a first line because a lot of these patients have other risk factors, but if a patient was coming to me and already on it, um, I would probably talk to her about it, but we know the first, the risk for blood clot is highest in the first four months after starting. So if someone had been on it and feels like it helps their acne, um, I might, you know, just let them stay on
1: it. But if I'm going to start one, I would pick one of the other progesterones. Okay, <laughs> that's helpful advice. Mm-hmm. And last question, Lakshmi, for, um, you know, oral contraceptives, How does the combined oral contraceptives decrease testosterone in in these patients?
3: So, um, as I mentioned, you know, men and women have estrogen and testosterone, Mm -hmm. and what we really see has to do with um, the sensitivity uh, or response to those hormones. Um, And one of those primary components can be uh, sex hormone binding globulin. And Mm -hmm. PCOS at baseline sex hormone binding globulin is typically lower, and with the hormone therapy, um, it can raise the sex hormone binding globulin, thereby making less free androgen available for its action. Okay.
1: Great. Well, thank you guys so much. That was a really helpful overview. And um, I think it was really helpful to hear um, how the experts take care of PCOS patients. So um, hopefully, I can help patients a lot better from now on. Well, we're going to finish up today's program with a final key point from each presenter. <coughs> Loriana?
2: Uh, my key point would be that this is a very prevalent syndrome and affects quality of life in multiple ways, so it's important to keep it in mind for a differential when patient comes um, with symptoms so that they can get the appropriate evaluation and treatment sooner.
3: And Lakshmi? Um, I just want to recognize that PCOS is um, a very... Multi-system um, a condition that requires input from multidisciplinary folks. We talked from the gynecologic and endocrine standpoint, but certainly uh, dermatology, uh, uh, psychiatry or psychology, as well as of course, um, you know, their internal medicine or family medicine provider as well. Um, so just highlighting that this is a group effort to help care for these patients and improve their quality of life.
1: Thanks for joining us today. You can claim your CME credit and or ABIM MOC points on our website, ccme.osu.edu, by taking the post-test. Next week, I'll be joined by Dr. Andrew Hunley to discuss recurrent urinary tract infections. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.